0: Preface by C.S. Lewis This book is, I believe, the first attempt to reverse a movement of thought which has been going on since the beginning of philosophy. The process whereby man has come to know the universe is, from one point of view, extremely complicated. From another, it is alarmingly simple. We can observe a single one-way progression. At the outset, the universe appears packed with will, intelligence, life, and positive qualities. Every tree is a nymph, and every planet a god. Man himself is akin to the gods. The advance of knowledge gradually empties this rich and genial universe, first of its gods, then of its colors, smells, sounds, and tastes. Finally of solidity itself as solidity was originally imagined. As these items are taken from the world, they are transferred to the subjective side of the account, classified as our sensations, thoughts, images, or emotions. The subject becomes gorged, inflated at the expense of the object. But the matter does not rest there. The same method which has emptied the world now proceeds to empty ourselves. The masters of the method soon announce that we were just as mistaken, and mistaken in much the same way, when we attributed souls or selves or minds to human organisms as when we attributed dryads to the trees. Animism apparently begins at home. We, who have personified all other things, turn out to be ourselves mere personifications. Man is indeed akin to the gods, that is, he is no less phantasmal than they. Just as the dryad is a ghost, an abbreviated symbol for all the facts we know about the tree foolishly mistaken for a mysterious entity over and above the facts, So the man's mind or consciousness is an abbreviated symbol for certain verifiable facts about his behavior, a symbol mistaken for a thing. And just as we have been broken of our bad habit of personifying trees, so we must now be broken of our bad habit of personifying men, a reform already effected in the political field there never was a subjective account into which we could transfer the items which the object had lost. There is no consciousness to contain, as images or private experiences, all the lost gods, colours and concepts. Consciousness is not the sort of noun that can be used that way. For we are given to understand that our mistake was a linguistic one, all our previous theologies, metaphysics, and psychologies were a byproduct of our bad grammar. Max Müller's formula, mythology is a disease of language, thus returns with a wider scope than he ever dreamed of. We were not even imagining these things, we were only talking confusedly. All the questions which humanity has hitherto asked, with deepest concern for the answer, turn out to be unanswerable. Not because the answers are hidden from us like God's privatee, but because they are nonsense questions like, how far is it from London Bridge to Christmas Day? What we thought we were loving when we loved a woman or a friend was not even a phantom like the phantom sail which starving sailors think they see on the horizon. It was something more like a pun or a sophisma per figuram dictionis. It is as though a man, deceived by the linguistic similarity between myself and my spectacles, should start looking round for his self to put in his pocket before he left his bedroom in the morning. He might want it during the course of the day. If we lament the discovery that our friends have no selves in the old sense, we shall be behaving like a man who shed bitter tears at being unable to find his self anywhere on the dressing table, or even underneath it. And thus, we arrive at a result uncommonly like zero. While we were reducing the world to almost nothing, we deceived ourselves with the fancy that all its lost qualities were being kept safe, if in a somewhat humbled condition, as things in our own mind. Apparently, we had no mind of the sort required. The subject is as empty as the object. Almost nobody has been making linguistic mistakes about almost nothing. By and large, this is the only thing that has ever happened. Now, the trouble about this conclusion is not simply that it is unwelcome to our emotions, It is not unwelcome to them at all times, or in all people. This philosophy, like every other, has its pleasures, and it will, I fancy, prove very congenial to government. The old liberty talk was very much mixed up with the idea that, as inside the ruler, so inside the subject, there was a whole world, to him the centre of all worlds, capacious of endless suffering and delight. But now, of course, he has no inside, except the sort you can find by cutting him open. If I had to burn a man alive, I think I should find this doctrine comfortable. The real difficulty for most of us is more like a physical difficulty. We find it impossible to keep our minds, even for ten seconds at a stretch, twisted into the shape that this philosophy demands. and. To do him justice, Hume, who is its great ancestor, warned us not to try. He recommended backgammon instead, and freely admitted that when, after a suitable dose, we return to our theory, we should find it cold and strained and ridiculous. And obviously, if we really must accept nihilism, that is how we shall have to live. Just as, if we have diabetes, we must take insulin but one would rather not have diabetes and do without the insulin. If there should, after all, turn out to be any alternative to a philosophy that can be supported only by repeated and presumably increasing doses of backgammon, I suppose that most people would be glad to hear of it. There is indeed, or so I am told, one way of living under this philosophy without the backgammon, but it is not one a man would like to try. I have heard that there are states of insanity in which such a nihilistic doctrine becomes really credible. That is, as Dr. I.A. Richards would say, belief feelings are attached to it. The patient has the experience of being nobody in a world of nobodies and nothings. Those who return from this condition describe it as highly disagreeable. Now, there is of course nothing new in the attempt to arrest the process that has led us from the living universe, where man meets the gods, to the final void where almost nobody discovers his mistakes about almost nothing. Every step in that process has been contested. Many rearguard actions have been fought, some are being fought at the moment, but it has only been a question of arresting, not of reversing the movement. That is what makes Mr. Harding's book so important. If it works, then we shall have seen the beginning of a reversal. Not a stand here or a stand there, but a kind of thought which attempts to reopen the whole question. And we feel sure in advance that only thought of this type can help the fatal slip which has led us to nihilism must have occurred at the very beginning. There is, of course, no question of returning to animism as animism was before the rot began. No one supposes that the beliefs of pre-philosophic humanity, just as they stood before they were criticised, can or should be restored. The question is whether the first thinkers in modifying and rightly modifying them under criticism, did not make some rash and unnecessary concession. It was certainly not their intention to commit us to the absurd consequences that have actually followed. This sort of error is, of course, very common in debate, or even in our solitary thought. We start with a view which contains a good deal of truth, though in a confused or exaggerated form. Objections are then suggested and we withdraw it. But hours later, we discover that we have emptied the baby out with the bath and that the original view must have contained certain truths for lack of which we are now entangled in absurdities. So here, in emptying out the Dryads and the Gods, which admittedly would not do just as they stood, we appear to have thrown out the whole universe – ourselves included. We must go back and begin over again, this time with a better chance of success, for, of course, we can now use all particular truths and all improvements of method which our argument may have thrown up as by-products in its otherwise ruinous course. It would be affectation to pretend that I know whether Mr. Harding's attempt in its present form will work, very possibly not. One hardly expects the first, or the twenty-first, rocket to the moon to make a good landing. But it is a beginning. If it should turn out to have been even the remote ancestor of some system which will give us again a credible universe inhabited by credible agents and observers, this will still have been a very important book indeed. It has also given me that bracing and satisfying experience which in certain books of theory seems to be partially independent of our final agreement or disagreement it is an experience most easily disengaged by remembering what has happened to us whenever we turn from the inferior exponents of a system even a system we reject to its great doctors i have had it on turning from common existentialists to monsieur sartre himself from Calvinists to the Institutio, from Transcendentalists to Emerson, from books about Renaissance Platonism to Ficino. One may still disagree. I disagree heartily with all the authors I have just named. But one now sees for the first time why anyone ever did agree. One has breathed a new air, become free of a new country. It may be a country you cannot live in, but you now know why the natives love it. You will henceforward see all systems a little differently because you have been inside that one. From this point of view, philosophies have some of the same qualities as works of art. I am not referring at all to the literary art with which they may or may not be expressed. It is the ipsitus, the peculiar unity of effect produced by a special balancing and patterning of thoughts and classes of thoughts, a delight very like that which would be given by Hesse's Glasperlenspiel, in the book of that name, if it could really exist. I owe a new experience of that kind to Mr. Harding.